This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm super excited about today's conversation with Dr. John Kudrowski. Uh, Dr. John is a geographer, uh, professor, and adventure coach who is going to talk to us today about uh, the incredible things that he has done. Um, we talk a lot about resilience here, about overcoming adversity, about dealing with challenges as they come to us, as they present themselves to us. And, you know, what I'm really excited about is diving into this conversation with someone who actually puts those challenges in front of himself. So, John, welcome to The Resilient Life. Hey, Ryan, thanks for having me today. And um, I'm excited to chat with you about a lot of these things. Obviously, to share some of my story, but I really want to just talk about what's, you know, inside all of us and what's possible for all of us when we face challenges, when we have to overcome adversity. And, um, and of course, all, all of us as human beings have the ability to be resilient with anything that we're facing. And that's really what I'm going to share with you today is lessons from the summits. Because a lot of times my adventures are related to being out in the outdoors, mainly in the mountains, with challenges involving skiing, uh, ski mountaineering, and even just climbing to the top of some of the highest mountains in the world. So I'll talk about some of those things, and this should be fun. It should be fun, yes. And you, you, you're a little cavalier in saying climbing some mountains. You have uh, summited Mount Everest twice. So, um, you know, again, I had the opportunity... Um, I think it was a few years ago now, I'm, I spoke at an event and the woman's name is escaping me, but um, she summited uh, Everest, well, attempted to summit Everest and got within literally like a hundred feet and had to turn back. And she gave this incredible talk about what that meant to her and how being able to see that summit and having to turn back um, how that kind of shaped the course of what she was doing in her life. She ended up going back and hitting the peak and, you know, it, it was incredible for her, but she said she learned more with the experience of not making it to the summit than when she actually did. So I thought that was incredible. And, and um, unlike a lot of our guests who have figuratively made it through challenging obstacles in their lives, you've spent many, many years climbing mountains lots of them. So how did you get into that hobby, that way of life? Well, I grew up, first of all, I grew up in a beautiful mountain town in the Vail, Colorado. And so I had the mountains right outside my doorstep. And um, when I was eight years old, I was taken up on a mountain near Vail called Holy Cross, which is a 14,000 foot peak. And when I was up on the top of that, I saw all these other mountains in all directions. And when you're kid in school you know elementary school the first thing you learn is like what's the highest mountain in the world and you learn that it's Everest and when I was standing on top of this mountain I saw hundreds of mountains in all directions and then said you know someday I'm not I don't know quite how I'm going to get there but someday I'm going to climb the highest mountain in the world and 
from that, we kind of came obsessed with the aspects of what kind of lessons the mountains taught me as a young kid. You know, I'd be out hiking with family, going up on mountains, and I realized, first of all, how difficult it was from a physical aspect. And then even the mental aspect of when you see a summit and how far away it is. And just like you said at the top of the program just a bit ago is, you know, I've been on Everest at times too, where I had to turn back and I learned more from those experiences as well. Um, 2015, we had an earthquake and we weren't able to climb. And there were many other things that happened in Nepal with the earthquake that really changed my life too. And, you know, in 2012, my first summit, Prior to making it to the top, I was, I was within 800 feet of the summit and had to turn around and go all the way back to base camp and start over. And I know a lot of people have those times in their lives where they have to start over. It could be with a, a job or a project. It could be with an illness. It could be with the family issues that they have to resolve. It could be with a relationship. You have to start all over. And that can be really, really hard. But, you know, getting back and thinking about that experience allowed me to reset and face what resilient challenges were ahead and then start over and start fresh. And that's one strategy to, to deal with huge setbacks is simply just starting over and starting fresh and, and sort of clearing your mind to move forward. And I've had to do that a couple of times on Everest. In 2018, I climbed without supplemental oxygen, but I didn't make it to the top. I turned around because it was too dangerous and too windy. And even that crushed me a little bit, but I learned from it. And, and knew that the next time I went back, things were possible, you know? And uh, so, yeah, the reset part is really important for everybody to understand is that it's okay, you know? It's not necessarily failure unless you call it failure. It's all about how you handle that setback. I love that. It's not failure unless you define it as failure. And that's so true because I always talk about, you know, with life, it's a series of ebbs and flows, right? You're going to you're going to be at the top of the mountain one day and you're going to be way below in the valley, maybe the next day. Um, but you have to be okay with the fact that it's going to go like that. Right. And once you're in those valleys, you have to know that you have to keep climbing. You have to keep going. And, um, I want to talk to you about something a little bit difficult. I actually were, was reading your, your blog, um, in February, you were at K2, and I want you to tell us a little bit about that, what K2 is, um, because I think most people are very, um, understand what Everest is, right? They know it's the highest mountain in the world, but tell us a little bit about climbing K2. And, um, you know, you lost several people on that climb. And um, I was reading the one account of your friend, uh, I think it's, it's, am I pronouncing it right, Atanas or Atanas? Atanas. Atanas. And, yeah, uh, Atanas. And reading that story in your blog, um, I know it affected you deeply, but as someone reading it from, if it affected me deeply, um, especially reading about how you had to go back and, and break the news to his wife and just the description you put in of where his wife was uh, when she learned the news, you know, that her husband had fallen to his death it brought me back to that place where I learned the news that my brother was killed in Iraq and it was that, um, instant shock. Um, so, so let's talk about K2. Let's get back. Tell us about the experience at K2, what K2 is, and then let's talk about some of the things that, uh, happened on that trip in February. 
So K2 is the second highest mountain in the world. It's in Pakistan, which is in the Karakoram Mountains, which is about a thousand miles northwest of Nepal, where Everest is. But the Himalayan mountains run from Nepal, kind of in a, a southeast to northwest sort of arc. And yeah, so thousands of miles away is K2, and it's uh, only 750 feet lower than Everest. So it's high and you know, people don't remember the second of anything in this society, it seems like, but the second highest is in fact a mountain that's a hundred times more difficult and dangerous than Mount Everest. You know, the, the death rate is one in every four people that make it to the top of K2 pass away. They, they don't make it down or something happens to them. And um, so I got invited to go as a climbing partner of my friend Colin O'Brady and uh, join an international team of climbers as well as a, a really strong team of Sherpa that were there to climb the mountain for the first time in the winter season. It had never been summited. And there are 14 mountains in, this, in the world that are over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. This was the only one of the 14 that has not been made it to the summit in the winter. And so it was sort of a, a prize in mountaineering circles and things. And so I was invited to go, but I went with caution because you know that this mountain is going to be at least 40 to 60 below zero with winds that are just crazy. And it's just something you look at and say, it's impossible, right? But, you know, in life, we always have challenges that are impossible. And so obviously I approached going on the expedition with caution and knew that, you know, my conservative approach to mountains, the fact that, you know, the mountains never not going anywhere. And if something's too dangerous, it's not worth risking your life for. So I went with that in mind and, we had a really strong team of Sherpas, though, that we were partnered with that we were able to you know, get climbing up there and they were super strong and they made it to the top uh, on January 16th. So it was really incredible feat. I personally felt that after they made the top that everyone should have left and gone home. That wasn't the case. Some people got summit fever and said, well, I can still try to climb, but the conditions were never as good as what happened for our Sherpa friends to climb to the top. And so because of that, a lot of things happened. Uh, two different climbers fell um, while descending the mountain and, and were killed. And then three other climbers that really got summit fever went for it and never came back. And so my decision-making with risk management in that situation was really what allowed me to come home. But I tend to take those uh, risk management decisions and decisions about summiting, you know, realizing that you always have to live to fight another day in life. And so, uh, yeah, my decision behind coming home was pretty easy. Actually, a lot of people were like, Oh, was it hard to turn around? And I said, well, no, because the, the summit conditions were not favorable whatsoever. You know, I, I, I actually answer a question with a question when people ask me about my choice to turn around and, and not climb further up on the mountain when it was summit time for the trap for the summit. And I, I ask them a question. I say, do you think 50 below zero is acceptable? Do you think 25 mile prior winds in 50 mile below zero is acceptable? I haven't had anybody tell me it's acceptable. And so I said that that was my decision. I went down because of that. But um, then I was waiting in base camp. Some of our team members did go up a little further. Some of them a little bit later had the sense to turn around. But K2 is a mountain that's, you know, steep and technical and dangerous. And uh, one of my friends uh, that I met on the expedition, Atanas, from Bulgaria was descending some of the ropes and he fell and um, really, really awful accident. And uh, we had to break the news to his fiance in one of the dining tents one morning. And she was, had trekked in with the team and was there taking time off from work and even working remotely with 
some of the internet we had and reading a book that morning and and it's it's really hard i mean in any of these situations but you have to be you know sympathetic empathetic understanding of the fact that this is going to completely destroy their world and turn it upside down um so you try to approach it with grace and 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 um just a, a deep hearted sadness for them too and and we had to tell her and when we told her it was it was really awful you know and it's something that as me a climber thinks about when i go places like i'm always going to come home that's my rule right. but i'm going to make decisions that influence that too i'm not going to go crazy and then even um you know, when it comes to that on a growth level, I do these projects that at times it seems like it pushes the envelope a little bit, but there's always been calculated risks within the management of my decision-making on expeditions like this. And um, with anything, you always just hope for the best, right? That's part of the resilient mindset that you have to have, even with the challenge. For me, sometimes challenges are life and death situations, right? Most people in life, they're facing in their everyday challenges whether it's with work whether it's in a relationship may not be a life or death situation but if you still approach it with the right mindset and hope for the best you're going to come out usually on the right right side of things if you do that yeah you know i i can um i can see how you can get wrapped up in the moment right so um, without having that mindset like you do of you know you're going to take risks but they're mitigated risks right and and you're at this level where you have this opportunity to do something so incredible, like summiting K2. And, it, and I think it's very easy to say, hey, it's not going to work. The conditions are not right. I, I can try this again. But when you're there and in the moment, you know, you, you probably feel that sense of, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to push through and I'm going to do it. And one of the things I was thinking about as, you know, I was preparing for this conversation with you today, I saw that, you know, one in four don't make it back from K2. And that has to be a wild feeling that, that weighs very heavily on you as you're approaching something like this, whether it's K2, whether it's uh, Everest, or, you know, frankly, whether it's a, a 14,000 foot mountain, you, you just don't know. And so you're entering into these situations knowing that there's a chance you may not come back, um, even with the best mitigated risks. I mean, reading about your friend's story, um, he, he, he was there with another friend, they're taking video. It, it probably seems like a cool moment where his friend's panning after he's coming down and rappelling down the rope and he pans just to kind of show the landscape. And when he comes back, he's gone. gone. And I mean, yeah. it was, it was incredible to just see like just that quick, just that quick, everything changes. And, you know, you go there with the realization that that can happen and that that will probably happen. If there's four of you, one of you is probably not coming back. Uh, how do you get your head around, again, you can talk about resilient mindset, but how do you wrap your head around the idea that regardless of all of the precautions and um, managing the risk, that it could, it could be you. You know, there could be one slip up, one, one tiny mistake that could be made. How do you prepare your brain to enter into that situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. The main, for me, it's, it's mainly uh, sort of putting together the idea of controlling things you can control and letting the things you can't control go 
I think that's the most valuable lesson uh, for any everybody because we all are going to have uh, situations in our lives that we have to face that there's things we can't control. Let's say maybe an attitude of somebody, maybe a, a job situation. We're interviewing for something and we, we interview for a job and, and there's 20 other candidates. We can't control what's on the other side over there, right? It's like, uh, I also played basketball in college, so we had to do the same thing. Like, like if we're playing in NCAA tournaments right now, we've played in a couple of NCAA tournaments and we couldn't worry about the teams on the other side of the bracket. We only had to worry about what was right in front of us. So it's really is pulling out and dividing up what we can control and what we can't control. And then in the mountains, it's, it's also trying to uh, pull apart the idea that, and I, I come across this a lot in the outdoor world with let's say weather and snow conditions for skiing like you'll get out there and people go crazy if it's a powder day and they're just like, Oh, these conditions are all time. It's not going to be like this again. And it's like, no, it's going to snow again. <laughs> There'll be more powder days. Like it's okay. Like, or, or today's like perfect weather, no winds, bluebird. Well, I mean, I'm not that old, but I've been out hiking and climbing since I was young. And like, there's plenty of days where there's no wind and it's beautiful weather. So when the weather's bad and the conditions aren't right, just turn around. And you know, some people get summit fever, like, Oh, I don't know if I'll ever get back up there again. And, People were like that on K2, like, unfortunately, you know, they're like, well, this is the only time ever that this is going to happen in the winter because the Sherpa summited and now there's ropes to the summit. But then we found that people went up there 17 days later and because the winds were so bad, some of the ropes were gone. So it wasn't exactly what everyone said. And there were a lot of factors, you know, and it was like, well, if you we really wanted to go back with a strong team and try to climb this again, I think it could be done again. You know, it's, it's moving that impossible out and making it possible. But a lot of people got caught up in that, unfortunately, too. Like, oh, this this will never happen again, you know. And I think uh, us as humans, when it comes to facing resilient challenges and setbacks and all the things that we're talking about with with mindset, you know, related to to these um, things that we're going to all go up against, I think having a fresher mind in terms of stepping back, evaluating things you can control and can't control is important. And then it's important to realize that there will be new chance, new opportunities. And that's okay if this setback sends you a different direction for the time being. You know, it doesn't mean that you can't get to your goal. You can't get to your summit. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, 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 I'm not a, um, a mountaineer. I have not, uh, I've not climbed uh, many mountains, uh, small little peaks, uh, actually, when I was just out in Colorado a few months ago, but nothing in comparison to, to what you're doing, but, um, I'm a runner. And so I have run marathons and, and I actually, um, I've run the Marine Corps marathon twice. And I just signed up, uh, last year I signed up for the Marine Corps marathon again, and it was, it was virtual and it ended up being virtual. And I was like, this is great. Of course I'm going to do it. It's virtual. There's a great uh, towpath along the Delaware River right here in Pennsylvania that I did training runs on. I can run, you know, it stretches for 26 miles. So I was like, this is perfect. It's going to be fun. It's going to be easy. I'll take my time. Well, having that in my head, I also was a little bit lax in my training and preparation because I wasn't showing up with 30,000 other people. I was going to be doing it with two of my girlfriends and, um, we were going to just be experiencing it along the way. We had our rucksacks. We were going to, you know, stop at the beautiful sites. And, and so I didn't train the way I had trained 
uh, previous times I had run a marathon. And I got out there in October and we started, um, and it was fun. You know, I was running it with my friend who had never run a marathon before. And she had been really uh, into the training. She had been, followed the program to a T. And I got about 13 miles and my body just started to not feel like it should feel at 13 miles when you have another 13 to go. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, I got to just keep going because here's my girlfriend who's been working her butt off to run her first marathon. And I don't want to spoil this experience for her. We got to about 19 miles and my hips legitimately felt like they were going to break off of my body. And I knew that if I kept going, I knew in my head, I actually, I could finish. I knew I could get to 26 miles, but I was also, you know, and Ryan 10 years ago would have just done it. I would have just been like, whatever, whatever I deal with afterwards, I'm just going to do it. But the Ryan today said, you know what? I am not going to risk injury or not being able to run again for many months because of what I'm going to do to myself in this moment. And, and I had to say, Hey guys, I got to stop. I, I can't keep going. And so we made it to about 22 miles, but it, it's that same mindset where, you know, I could see the end. I mean, four miles to go. I'd already run, you know, 22. Uh, I could see the end in sight, but I weighed the risk of what I was going to do if I kept going that four miles and I stopped and, um, I didn't feel good about it at first, but looking back, that's what I needed to do, right? And, you know, and I think about a lot of times when you're, you put so much preparation into a challenge in front of you and how, you know, we're, we are programmed to say, you know, push, push through it, you know, adapt and overcome, uh, you know, it's okay to experience the pain. There's all these great things. And I follow a lot of um, retired military guys that are just animals physically. And they put all these challenges and, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And, and I love that <laughs> mindset. I do. But you also have to gauge that with this idea of like, am I making a stupid decision by moving forward? And that was mm -hmm. the first time, honestly, in my life where... I felt okay about the decision I've made. Um, I've quit things before, like physical challenges, but I've, it, they didn't, it didn't sit well with me. This was the first time I felt okay with that. And that was a shift for how I approached things. And that doesn't mean that I'm like, okay, I'm a quitter now. I'm just going to stop if I'm not feeling good. But I also know um, that I have some greater sense of risk management as I approach things and as I go into things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, I think, uh, yeah, when, when we relate that to our expeditions, I have this uh, hashtag I use actually on my uh, social media and on my Instagram. I'm at I love it. Uh, Dr. John Ketsky is my Instagram, but um, and I'm always out doing different adventures. But I have a hashtag called uh, hashtag the mountain decides. It's just real simple, and that's because it really does. It's actually easier when the mountain does decide for you. Like you could be going out to do like a hike and there's thunder and lightning storm starting and you're like, no, I'm not going up there in that. Or, Hey, the avalanche conditions are too bad today, or it's a snow and it's a blizzard and I can't see. And, you know, and you're like, Oh, cool. I, I get to turn around, you know? So like over the years, I've been more about listening to the mountain and what the mountain's telling us. And, uh, 
you know, it, it sounds like your mountain was telling you that your body, you know, just said, Hey, after 22 miles, that's good. You know? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, um, I love your hashtag. I actually had that written down to talk about what that meant to you, the mountain size. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and you also uh, talk about being Everest ready. So that's mm-hmm. something else I've seen. Like what, what are some challenges directly tied to mountaineering that you think can apply to people facing difficulties in their life? You know, uh, being prepared, having backup plans. Like what is, what is being Everest ready mean? I was not Everest ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the basic level for me, what Everest ready means is like my lifestyle is already pretty conducive to the fact that like I could tomorrow, which I'm actually leaving next week. I could jump on a plane tomorrow and be ready to go climb Mount Everest because I do so many things in my daily life with whether it's like guiding a hut trip or leading a trip with some clients or skiing every day. Or like yesterday morning, I skinned up the mountain training with another friend and, and uh, my lifestyle is so conducive to the, the, the climbing mountain stuff where I'm, I'm, my, I'm physically always prepared. I could just literally jump on a, jump on a uh, plane and fly over and climb Everest with basically I say without training, I mean, I'm training through all these things. So it's a lifestyle thing. So what I mean by Everest ready is like, you know, it could be related to your everyday life with, you know, some people, let's say, get stuck in a, in a rut of, you know, with a job or with a project and they might have a dream to do something and they might be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just putting it off. And first of all, if you have a dream to do something, I say, don't wait. You know, you, you never know. Like we talked about, like life can be taken away in an instant. So what are you waiting for? You know, there's no, there's no reason to, to put off your dreams, whatever it is that do something small today to work towards it. But it's also the, the diligence to be ready for uh, facing the challenge, but also if the opportunity comes then you're ready for it. So an example for me is not just related to mountains, but like, you know, I, I, at a younger age, I, I knew at some point in my life, I dreamed of like being able to basically get outside and climb and ski and lead expeditions and be outside every day and do what I love. But I wasn't able to do that when I was younger because first of all, I didn't know how, but I had to get all the training to put me in position for that. But then I also just knew, like, for example, for me, if I had an education, it would open doors to a lot of different opportunities that I never knew existed. So after undergrad, I went to grad school, I got a master's, I got a PhD, and those things at times have allowed me to open up doors for other opportunities. So being Everest ready is about preparing yourself every day in ways that you may not know the, the impact of how, how let's say education will help you later, but just doing it because it will help you. It could be like, if you're training for a race, you get into a routine every day that you're preparing yourself for it. You know, uh, I have lots of clients I work with that their goal isn't Everest. I, I have a client, for example, that his goal is just to go and have a fun big ski trip somewhere every year, whether it's to Alaska, to Japan, Obviously, when the pandemic pandemic ends, we can go to those places. But how is he going to be Everest ready? Well, we put him through a training program where he's every day, no matter where he's living, he's doing a little bit of it every single day. For a yeah, sorry that 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 obviously takes discipline, right? So you can't. Um, yeah. Uh, I um, one of one of my good friends, Jocko Wilnick, is a retired Navy SEAL, and um, he talks about this idea of motivation um, because I always say to him, how do you stay mo- so motivated? He wakes up at 4.30 every morning and, <laughs> um, and works out. And I'm like, well, how, how do you find the motivation to do that every single day? And he's like, 
motivation is a fleeting emotion. It comes and it goes. Like motivation is not what makes me wake up at 4.30 every day. It's discipline. Having the discipline to, to you know, be Everest ready. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's like finding that uh, ability to find joy in the journey, yes. basically. And the joy in the journey can be some of the tough wake-ups at 4.30 that you remember. Um, if you, you know, let's say you want to get better at playing a musical instrument or singing, you know, something you could put your time in every single day. If you're an athlete, you put your time in every single day and the, the joy comes in later, whether it's say you win a championship or you stand on a summit or you get that job promotion, or if your goal is to have a family, you're working harder in your relationship life. And then you're, you're working towards, um, towards the steps to let's say have a family. So there is a lot of applications to that. And through those processes, it could be really hard. But if you find a way to enjoy it and have the right mindset to face the growth challenges in the right way, that's really what Everest Ready is just all about. It kind of encompasses all those pieces, the mindset. And then for me, is the reason I've done some of these projects is that it's spurred growth for me. Uh, you're going to stay the same if you don't try new things. And so I, I say, you know what, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Trying new challenges and, and new things is, is really important. I love that. And so when we talk about mindset, one of the things, you know, we talked a lot about knowing when not to move forward, right? Like knowing when to not summit that peak, knowing when to stop because it's just not the right decision. But I also want to talk to you about, um, you know, again, you're, you're a coach, you're an adventure coach. So you're kind of talking to people about pushing themselves to do something different, to reach outside of their comfort zone. Have you ever had an example where you've had to push somebody through their fear, right? Because I, I, I have to imagine that in, in mountaineering, there are times where people may be in a place where, um, and this can happen in anything I've had it happen in um, marathons, I've run with people where, you know, running a marathon is, is just as much mental as it is physical. And you can get to a place where you're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like me, I knew I had to, to stop because of where I was physically, but you can, it can play real bad mind tricks with you where you say, I can't go anymore. It, this isn't working. And so have you ever had to like work with somebody on pushing through that fear. You know, your only options are to turn around um, when you're facing a treacherous climb. But what about that person that, that the only option is moving forward? And, and how do you teach them to kind of overcome that little voice inside their head that's telling them to quit when they don't have to? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing would be making them feel comfortable if it is a really scary situation, right? Or showing them that it's safe. For me, I mean, that's probably the biggest obvious answer because there's been times you're up there some, with somebody and let's say they're climbing without a rope and you could suddenly put a rope on them, help them understand that they're tied into a section that they're trying to climb and they'll just climb it. So the rope sort of offers them that safety net so that's kind of my best sort of tangible example. But, um, but a lot of times it can be learned and also coming back with a fresh new perspective. So, you know, I had a, a client on a mountain um, one time and it was really, really dangerous. And we were unroped and then we went up and scouted the section, but then we turned around 
and then we thought about it for a day and then we went back up after t discussing it more and then he was able to climb through it so it was always stepping back and evaluating the situation is usually one of the best ways just to think about it more and that can be true with you know tasks if, if you're working with a team on a project it could be in the corporate world and you've got to sort of bring your part to the table and discuss it and think about it more you might come back with a better idea the next time or a better way of doing things mm -hmm. and so in in the outdoor world it's a lot about that it's it's making the somebody feel safe and comfortable before they proceed with something that could be potentially dangerous but ensuring the that everything is safe is really key i think it that that is that speaks really true to me making somebody feel safe and comfortable you know uh, I, I shared with you that I was uh, out in Vail right before, really had the best week out there right before the world shut down. Uh, we were hearing like, okay, there's this COVID thing, what's happening? And, you know, we were just kind of in our own place. Like we're just, something's going on, but we're going to enjoy the week out here. And I went out there um, to spend some time with our mutual friend, Brady, and I had not skied in 15 years. Uh, and so the last time I had skied, I was in Tahoe. My husband used to live out there and, and I loved it, but you know, it, and Brady kept saying, no, oh, it's just like getting on a bike. You know, you, you never learn, stop learning how to ride a bike. So I kept telling him, all right, well, I want to ease into this. You know, I, I just want, again, I'm, I'm the non-experienced. I just want the bunny slopes, nothing big. Let me just get my feet wet. Next thing you know, we go up the gondola and I'm staring right at the back bowls. And he's like, all right, let's go. And I'm looking at this <laughs> hill and I'm like, no way, there's no way. And my girlfriend who was with me, I mean, she was having a moment where she's standing up there, she's kind of hyperventilating and she's like, I can't go. And, and Brady had such a way about him of saying like, you guys got this, you know, it's fine. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, he was doing a good job of pointing out like the five-year-old kids that, hopped off the gondola and just like took off. He's like, look at that kid, you know? And there was something about the way he was talking me through that, that I was like, okay, I got this. And that set off. And, and that was our first run. Literally our first run in Vail was, you know, down through the back bull sign. And it was like riding a bike for me. As soon as I started going, I'm like, I remember why I love this so much. And mm -hmm. that wouldn't have happened if he wasn't there kind of talking us through that, I would have turned around and been like, I'm back on the gondola, I'm going down. I'll see you guys, you know, I'll be having a drink at the bar. Let me know when you're done. Um, but it was, you know, cause I had my husband like, come on, just go, just go. And that was not helping me um, with what I needed. And, you know, it was Brady kind of showing that calm approach just, and, and again, he's a way more experienced skier than I am, as you know, but, him kind of waiting for us, kind of talking us through what we needed to do. Uh, I, I just had such a magical time, but it was about really at the end of the day, making me feel safe um, to, to start going down that, that mountain. So I, to I totally get that. Definitely. Yeah. And then you touched on like another factor I see all the time is, and especially with skiing is, you know, I'll be with somebody that hasn't skied for a while and then they're out there and then they'll be out sitting on the chairlift and they'll look down and be like, look at that like little eight-year-old kid. What's going on? Oh, if they can do it, I can do it, you know. <laughs> and oftentimes in life with a lot of different challenges, that's that can be what we look at too, is like 
it, it always helps both on the training side and, and when it comes to facing a task, like, although they're doing it, I could do this, you know? Oh, yeah. If this little kid's doing it or if that, that guy that's like way older than me, he's doing it. I could do this, you know? It's, yeah. There's, it's totally a, possible. there's actually a really funny thing that relates to that kind of idea with the Marine Corps marathon. So I forget what year it was. Um, maybe in the late nineties, early two thousands, Oprah Winfrey ran the Marine Corps marathon. And so a lot of people do this thing where it's, I'm going to beat Oprah's time, you know, because (laughs) it's like this thing, like, well, what's your, what's your goal to beat Oprah's time. Um, now Oprah had like a whole team around her, you know, she trained for a year and a half and she actually ran it in like four and a half hours, which is pretty decent. Um, and, uh, but people always talk about, well, if Oprah ran it, I, I, I can, I can run this marathon, you know, and I'm, I'm always, it's, the, it's like the Oprah, um, the Oprah effect, you know, Oprah Winfrey ran it. You can run the marathon. I always say that if someone's like, oh, I don't, I'm like, come on, Oprah Winfrey ran this. You got this, you know? So I totally get that. Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, you talk about all these things, you talk about, you know, mitigated risk, knowing when to turn back, knowing when to go forward, but what's the hardest thing you've ever made it through? Um, the, the, the experience, you know, it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain, but the experience that you had was, that was the hardest for you to push through. And what did you draw on to help yourself push through that? I think it was actually not really related to to mountain climbing, but it was related to a shift in what I was doing in my life in terms of my career. I originally was in uh, grad or an undergrad trying to get an undergrad degree in chemistry and biology, and it was really, really hard. And then I was going to maybe go to medical school. And then I had this vision to, to walk away from all that, even though I was able to get into medical school and, and I was at a crossroads in my life where I was either go to med school or maybe go back to grad school. And a lot of people thought I was going to be a real doc, real medical doctor versus a doctor of geography, weather and climate. And there was a crossroads in my life of deciding, do I turn my back on medicine? Do I try to go to this grad school thing? Do I worry and care about what other people think? And I chose to take the other path and because I had this vision to be able to do a lot of stuff that I'm doing now. But I remember how hard that was because, you know, we all face choices in life where you have a lot of people that love you and care about you and they're worried you're making the wrong choice. And sometimes in life, we as individuals worry too much about what other people think. And I think that's a valuable lesson because you can't get caught up in that. You have to get caught up in what you want to do for your life that makes you happy. And that makes you, you know, for me, face growth within challenges. And so that led me to a lot of other things. And that was, you know, pursuing my passions in the outdoors with writing the books that I've written, doing some of the projects I've done. And then it has ultimately led me to the next step, which is now for me more as a mentor to others, because I, I'll be honest. I mean, yeah, I have my days where I can go out solo and go climb a mountain or go mountain biking and do some things alone, but I don't find as much joy in it anymore. I, I find a bigger joy in the process of training others for their dreams in the mountains and in the backcountry and in adventure. And so, you know, while I have done some projects and like, for example, I've got a couple of my books here today that are on my like website, but um, sleeping on the summits was one of the projects. And then I went and skied off some volcanoes and skied sleeping on the summits of the cascade volcanoes. Um, Those projects were really hard and I learned a lot of resilience through them, 
But then I also learned the value of things like teamwork and then later on working with others through my expeditions on Mount Everest and, and things of that nature. So, but the hardest part was pivoting into this space because a lot of people, a lot of people expected, or even I expected for a long time that I would go into medicine and just be a doctor. And, and that didn't really drive me. And so I think the lesson today for everybody is to, to listen to that voice in your head. If you've got a dream or a passion that you can't let go, that you shouldn't wait to do it. You should go for it and you should do your best at it and take the steps to get there. And it's going to be hard, but it's, it's possible. And why not? You know, you only get one life to live and it could be taken away in an instant, which I've seen in environments that I've been in. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure we put um, links up to uh, John's book uh, on our YouTube page. Um, it's, it's funny what you were talking about, you know, some of these solitary, solitary things, uh, uh, you know, climbing mountains, riding bikes, skiing that you were doing alone, wasn't bringing you the same passion. And we talk a lot at uh, the Travis Manning Foundation about the power of community, how important it is that you're surrounded by people who encourage you. Um, and it seems like you've become that for other people. Uh, I love that. I love that idea. And But there's a lot of people right now that may not have the means or the opportunity or even the desire to do something uh, as challenging as climbing Mount Everest or scaling a 14,000-foot peak but they still want to push themselves uh, to build their resilience. So what kind of advice would you give to people who want to find a way to get mentally tougher, right? And, and maybe it's not around a physical challenge, but as you know, if you're an adventure coach, you're certainly mentoring and coaching them on much more than just the adventure in front of them. So what advice do you give to someone that says, hey, how can I build that? How can I build that resilient mindset? Yeah, I think it's uh, building a routine every day that that can help you face tough times, you know, but to get to the mindset. Obviously, for me, I seek out those growth opportunities. But even if it's just on a daily basis, like I've, I've actually turned to things like um, yoga and meditation and then nutrition. So like having a good diet, having a routine with a good diet, eating healthy, that'll turn you into uh, somebody that has the right mindset to face other challenges that you have to face every day, but it's just the little things in relationship to that. But those are some basic things that I've really focused on over the last several years um, for wellness, you know, and having a healthy mindset. And then, you know, simple as it sounds, is like, hey, you know, think, think positive. If the first thing you think about when you get out of every day is something bad that can happen, you're gonna keep thinking that. But if you wake up with a fresh, mind and a fresh thought that is is more towards the growth and the, hey i'm going to face a challenge but that's okay or this is going to be hard but hey so what it's hard i'm just going to face it versus either putting it off or already dreading it i think that's already kind of one of the first steps that you should take because that will take you in the right direction right off the bat yeah definitely um i think it, it, it is uh you know you talk about uh, wellness. And I think, you know, when you look at it, it, when you look at your, your well-being, it's a combination of so many things. You know, I think people can lean into one thing and not think about, uh, you know, again, over the past 12 months, it's like uh, a lot of people have developed a, a workout routines, you know, and it's like, I'm just going to work out. I'm locked in my house. I'm going to do these at home, but they're not thinking about what am I putting in my body? And am I getting enough sleep? 
Um, and there's so many, you know, am I being mindful? Am I practicing some sort of meditation where I'm very reflective of um, things I want to do? So it's always about that, that mind and body approach and it's little pieces from each of them that are going to help you to grow. Uh, I talk about that a lot. So I want to talk about uh, what you have coming up next week. You are heading to Nepal for another Everest base camp trek. And I'd love mm-hmm. to hear some details of the trip uh, and, and maybe some absolutely essential items that you bring on something like this. Yeah. So the biggest thing to distinguish in that space of, of Nepal, you know, we, it's over between India and China. There's uh, people go to base camp of Everest every year, which is at 17,000 feet. It's, you know, a view of Everest. We hike and trek through villages. So when we talk about trekking to base camp, it's a hike. We, we walk through, we stay in tea houses and lodges. We eat good food. We have cultural experiences at monasteries. It's a trip and a, and a journey that everybody can do. Like, like, you know, we train our people a little bit, the people that go, we, we train them with some uh, pre-trip preparation, but it's, it's a hike. It's not climbing the mountain. And then you distinguish that from actual climbing the mountain. So when you hear somebody, oh yeah, I, I trekked to Everest. It doesn't mean you trekked up Everest. You climb, you, it, the difference is that you're climbing Everest, you're climbing from the base camp, which we're going to end up doing. Um, but we're also trekking. So I have, I have a group of eight, eight people that I'm taking to the base camp. And I do this trek every year. And it takes about two weeks because we fly over there. This year we have to deal with some quarantining from COVID. But everyone, most people are vaccinated as well. And then we fly a helicopter into um, a village at 9,000 feet. And we spend about eight or nine days going from village to village and staying in lodges and visiting and seeing culture and, and just enjoying that journey in the beautiful um, valleys in springtime in the Himalaya. So grass is getting green, the flowers are popping out of the trees and it's just a really beautiful time. And then we eventually get to base camp. We hike a mountain that's still pretty high, 18,000 feet called Kalapatar. And we get the view of Mount Everest and then the trekkers trek back out. Um, and then I'll stay with one of my clients and we are gonna end up climbing the mountain again. So it'll be my fifth expedition climbing Mount Everest and it'll be the sixth time that I've trekked to the base camp. And yeah, I offer this trek every year. Um, I'm sure you guys, if you want, you can put up some information we have on my website about the trek that people can join, but we're also gonna offer one this fall and then again next year. But this trek will change people's lives because it's, it is about that mindset growth. We talk a lot about it during the trek there's days that for some people are hard. We do get up a little bit in altitude and, um, and there can be a lot of unexpected things that occur, let's say with the weather. Like one time we had a big hailstorm while we were hiking one day and that really impacted people a little bit. And it was tough for an hour or two. And then we got back to a shelter and, and people were like, whoa, that was crazy. But you know, that, that was an experience. So there's always unexpected twists and turns along the way. Um, but yeah, the, the thing that I do with this trip is I, um, yeah, I mean, we, we pack a duffel bag and we hire locals, either yaks or porters to carry our, our extra duffels with, let's say changes of clothes and things. Um, but I, I also do this trek, uh, in affiliation with, uh, two foundations. My, one of my foundations that I created is called the NOD. NOD stands for no off days. And it's the NOD Everest foundation. We raise money for, uh, we've been doing fundraisers late as of late for to support the local people because tourism in a lot of these mountain communities, both in Pakistan and in Nepal have been wiped out. And so 
I also got involved with another organization called the Sherpa Foundation. That earthquake was in 2015, and we rebuilt over 100 homes and raised half a million dollars for earthquake relief. But kind of both foundations are partnered because my friend Pemba and his brother Lakpa live in the Kumbu. They run the Sherpa Foundation. So then I created my foundation that we've been raising money to pay porters, Sherpas, and tea house workers extra money because last year they were totally wiped out from the tourism. Right. And so we'll also, uh, we'll be putting up a link to that fundraiser soon. Um, but we ended up doing the same fundraiser in Pakistan for the locals in Pakistan. And so, you know, it's sort of standard in the industry there for trekking when we go trekking to Nepal or anywhere to tip your local guides, to tip people that are helping you porters and cook staff and things like that. So we tip them normally and our, our, our members do that. But then we created a fund that we crowdsourced and raised more money. And we said, well, hey, this say this this group of kitchen staff workers or this group of porters, we here's an extra thousand dollars, you know, when you're just handing out money because they didn't work last year. And so this this was a really big help for them. Um, so that's one thing I was just passionate about is just bringing people there brings tourism in and then what extra can we do to help? And then um, my foundation is also supporting a study abroad course through Colorado Mountain College here in the Vail area. And we are launching a study abroad program where we'll take students over there for almost a month at the end of 2021. And we're going to create a scholarship or two scholarships, depending on how much money we make, to fund students to go on this study abroad experience, which involves similar to things that we do on the trek, but even more. They get to live in the area for like an extra week and live with host families and see what it's like to farm there, see what it's like, you know, to build homes there, like different, different projects we have them uh, as a part of. Um, so that's kind of the all-encompassing purposes now of me that drives me to go and do my trek is I do enjoy taking people hiking and they get that experience with all the culture, but what more can we do now when we go to these places versus just being, let's say, a, a selfish Western climber that can go and climb a mountain. I mean, we all can do that, but what else can we do to help in these areas? And that's sort of been my mission now as we move forward. We will make sure to link all of this um, as well so people can check it out and see how they can get involved uh, either in supporting um, the initiatives uh, or you know maybe uh, thinking they might want to um, join you on a trek. What do you think? Do you have to, I, I know you say there's a little bit of preparation that we work through with, um, with uh, people for this uh, Everest trek. Um, what physical capabilities do you need to be a person that would be able to to do this well you just have to have a base level of fitness and then as part of our programs we put you on like a training program so our, our my assistant and i will um basically talk to you and say well hey the trip is six months away where do you live what do you have access to for functional training and cardio and things and we can put you on a week-to-week -week program um and that's the basics of it. And you know, a lot of times people, a lot of my, because I'm Colorado based, most of the people that come with are from, from the mountains in Colorado. And then we just sort of train them locally in terms of giving them advice or they like to get out and do hikes and things like that. So that's good. And, uh, oh, and so, yeah, I heard that you might be interested in coming with us next year. Oh, well, right? I mean, you know, I'm, a, could be a goal. You and your husband. I'm, a, I'm a sea level chick. So you're going to have yeah. to really put together a pretty robust <laughs> training plan. I was that's actually okay. just out in, um, in Colorado, um, and we did we did an expedition with uh, with twenty veterans in um, just a few months ago, and um, I mean I had a little bit of trouble with the altitude, and it wasn't 
you're like, oh, it was 9,000 feet, a little altitude. I don't even think we were there. And I was still feeling a little funny. So that would be my biggest thing is how I can build that up. Maybe I'll just have to come out to Vail a couple more times and uh, do some training out there. Yeah, there's a lot of strategies with training. I mean, obviously you get on some hills, even if you're at sea level, there's a lot of technology now. Some people have these like hypobaric tents that they sleep in. Yeah, others, you just try to come to altitude a little bit to kickstart your body before going on a trip. I mean, that was the premise behind my sleeping on the summits projects was that I, so that I would feel better when I went to higher mountains yep. later on. So it was, it, part of it was that with those book projects. But um, yeah, there's always a way to, 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 to get into shape and to prepare for these things so all right yeah. well i'm gonna i'm gonna consider it i'm gonna i'm gonna learn more about it and will you be when um when you're there obviously the the base camp trek is um is a little bit uh easier um in terms of what you're doing physically but once you start um uh the summit uh to the top of everest do you document that along the way i mean is there a way to oh yeah follow you yeah. So yeah, my website, johnkodrowski.com. I've got a blog that still has some of the K2 entries up. And I wrote like a sort of a, a, a in the middle blog from being home from that experience and what's next. And then, yeah, starting next week, I'll start writing and posting, you know, at least twice a week about where I am trekking and, and the experience with that. And sometimes I'll post more than once uh, more than twice a week, just depending on where we are. But our journey trekking with our group will be included with some photos. And then once we get to base camp, I'll go through the process of what it takes to acclimatize and the steps that we're doing to go up and down the mountain and what's involved with putting camps in and then why why the weather's doing what it's doing. So a lot of similar things that I talked about with K2, but now it's Everest and Nepal and it's the highest mountain in the world. And so, yeah, so definitely it's my website, johnkodrowski.com. You go to the blog page, there'll be updates about it. You know, constantly I'll up, update my social media on Instagram too. Awesome. And uh, we'll just have a really fun journey with it. I am certainly going to follow along. I'm sure other people listening will be doing the same. This is like fascinating to me. I, I, again, I was really excited to talk to you because um, just the idea that you put yourselves in, in, in situations that, um, you know, it, it becomes life and death. It's not, uh, and there's not many people that, that do that. And, you know, I take the mountains out of it. Um, you have a mindset that has prepared you to be able to put yourself and be pragmatic about it, be practical about it. And, um, and I think that's honestly what you need when, when you're dealing with the situations, uh, that you deal with. Um, I always end my interviews with the same question, but I feel like you answered it a thousand times over already <laughs> in a lot of your answers, but I always end uh, every interview with the same question. What does living a resilient life look like for you? Living a resilient life for me is to expect the unexpected, you know, have the mindset to push through the unexpected because that's face it. I mean, that's what life is all about. Finding joy in the journey and facing the unexpected will allow you to reach your summits. And I think that's the most important part about being resilient. Expect the unexpected. Uh, we are wishing you lots of luck as you take off for Everest. We'll be following your journey, uh, myself and, and others, and really excited to see uh, how that goes. Um, everyone can learn more about everything John's doing, the opportunities that are presented to uh, everyday sea level uh, humans like myself. 
I'm so excited for people to hear this conversation. I think it was fascinating. I thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us before you head out to Nepal. Uh, Dr. John Krajowski, thank you so much for joining us on the Resilient Life Podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Have a great day. You too.